A month or so ago, advisedly I put or so ago, my wife and I were at a downtown hotel in Denver while I was doing a seminar, and um, about four in the morning, three in the morning, Saturday morning, the seminar was to begin at nine o'clock, about three or four in the morning I woke up with severe pain. And the pain began to get progressively worse. It was enough to wake me up from a sound sleep. And I began to literally roll on the floor of our hotel room. And I said to Rachel, you just got a call. And of course, she was on the phone by now and calling the emergency people. And um, I'm listening to her call. And she said, yes, I'm calling on behalf of my husband, Larry Crabb. His number in this healthcare system is such and such. And he's experiencing severe abdominal pain. We're not sure what the problem is. And I thought that her next words, listening to the conversation, would be describing the pain. Her next words were giving the address of the hotel. And I'm thinking, why is she doing that? Then it dawned on me, they're going to send an ambulance for me. I've never been in an ambulance in my life. So she gave them the number, and the nurse said, don't leave the room. The ambulance will be there in a very few minutes. Within 15 minutes, two guys are banging their door at 4.30 in the morning, and the fire truck was there, and five of those people were there, and, and I'm still rolling on the floor and making noises. And I do when I heard. I try to keep it very low-key. Just like any other man. <laughs> Let me direct my attention over here. <laughs> well, they strapped me on the gurney and took me down the elevator and they got me in the ambulance and Rachel's in the front seat with the one, uh, one fella and the other medic is behind with me and get the intravenous going and ask me a thousand questions and doing a bunch of things and talking to the hospital. We're coming in with a male Caucasian 52, excellent shape, you know, that sort of thing. And um, good muscle tone, alert mind. Um, <laughs> humble. Thanks for picking up on that. And in the middle of this short ambulance ride, I said to the paramedic, I said, why are you going to all this fuss? I, mean, I had stomach pains, but this was more than I... I mean, was, they were very bad stomach pains. Turned out it was a kidney stone. But as I was in the middle of this, thinking, well, this is a lot of fuss for little pain. Never had this kind of fuss made over me before. And his words were these. He said, we need to know what battle we're fighting. Now, I didn't think of that as a sermon illustration at the moment, understand. <laughs> I was preoccupied with more important things at the moment, but it did occur to me later that all the fuss they were making over me, there, there was a sense in which I, I really liked that people were taking my pain very seriously. I really liked that. These guys were, were working on me. And when we got to the emergency room, they kind of wheeled me in, priority case, and the nurses met us, and the doctor met us, and... And the doctor was getting a report from the paramedic and he looked me over and did a few things and as I'm lying there still writhing in pain, the doctor gave me a great sentence. He said, we have more medicine than you have pain. <laughs> I wanted to kiss the guy. <laughs> now you hear the analogy I'm going to draw? Who has been that interested in the battle going on in my soul? Anybody entered your life with that kind of intensity? Anybody asked you a thousand questions, not because they're prying, but because you just care so much? 
And even when you get a little bit annoyed by how many questions are being asked, something inside of you is drawn to it because the motivation is not to control or manipulate or maneuver. Or it's just because they really care and they just can't stand seeing the pain you're in. They want you to know joy. They want you to know love. They want you to know peace. They want you to know the fruit of the Spirit. And there's a battle going on. Well, I would suggest that if we're going to enter the battle for somebody's soul, the people that we're going to elder shepherd need to, need to know that we, we care what battle's going on. Well, let me give you a few thoughts on what battle might be going on in people's lives. And I'm going to cover this very, very briefly, and I might even speak a little faster to see if I can cover it. <laughs> see, the problem is you all just listen too slow. And so if you'll speed it up, we'll get along. I, I've noticed uh, a couple of years ago, I, I noticed that I, I think there are four, and there are many others, but four metaphors for struggle, for struggles with the flesh in the Old Testament that strike me as worthy of our attention. Let me just mention them very briefly to you. The first metaphor that maybe helps me as I get involved in somebody's life to know what struggle might be going on is a metaphor that I've come to dub city building. City building. I'll tell you where I get it from. We'll not turn in the Bible to these passages for the sake of time, except maybe one or two, but... In Genesis, you recall in chapter 4 that after Cain killed Abel, that God judged Cain and pronounced several judgments on him. Remember the last judgment he pronounced on Cain? You will be a restless wanderer all the days of your life. Remember Cain's response? He had three or four elements to the punishment. What did Cain respond to? He said, that one I don't want. You made me a restless wanderer. I'll be defenseless. I'll be killed. What's the first thing Cain did? After he complained over the consequences that God imposed upon him for his sin, what's the first thing he did? Well, we're told that after God's exchange with Cain was finished, that in Genesis 4, and I think it's verse 17, we're said that we're told that Cain was then building a city. What did God say? Wonder. What did Cain say? No way. I'm going to build me a city. Look through the scriptures at the metaphor of city building, and you'll see it's negative all the time. Nimrod, chapter 10, is that where it is in Genesis? Nimrod was the great what? The great city builder. He was the first one who built five great cities, Babylon amongst them. He was a man who was a mighty hunter before the Lord. The phrase before the Lord means the Lord was keeping a careful eye on him as a parent would on a rebellious child. It doesn't mean he was proud as punch watching this marvelous hunter. That isn't the point of it. City building, not a good thing. Deuteronomy chapter 6, when you get into the land of Canaan, don't build a city. Live in the cities that are already there. John 14, don't let your hearts be troubled. Why? I build a city. Don't you build a city, I'll build a city. Hebrews chapter 11, I'm not ashamed to be the God of those who what? Who look for another place, another country. Who don't build their cities here, but who look ahead to what's coming up. What does city building mean in the Bible? I suggest it means this. I'm going to find some way to make my life work now according to my resources. And as long as that's your deepest passion, your deepest passion is not Jesus. So as you enter the struggle for my soul, the battle for my soul, understand the battle for my soul is not centrally that I parent well, that I husband well, that I teach well, that I minister well. Yeah, there's elements there. But the central battle for my soul is work at the level of my deepest passion. What is my deepest passion? To be a city builder? To use my talents, my abilities to make my life work? You see, all of us have done that. How did we learn as youngsters? We learned what we were good at. What did we specialize in? 
why when I was in eighth grade and I played in a Saturday morning basketball league and first game my father was able to come to. It's an old story. Some of you heard me tell it before. And um, I was a decent basketball player, no great shakes, but I was okay. And the opening tip-off with my dad in the stands, the, our, our center was taller than the other team center, and he jumped higher and tipped the ball into my eager waiting hands. And I tore down the court with the basketball, and I outran the other team, and I sunk a layup. Only problem was it was the wrong basket. How did I feel at that point? With my dad watching. How did I feel? Alive. <laughs> this is the way life works. Yes, Larry, you're going to make it. You can put balls in wrong baskets. No, how did I feel? I felt awful, right? Let me tell you the colossal mistake this deceived eighth grade boy made. I defined that experience as death. That's not death. Death is separation from God. But I defined failing in my abilities as separation from meaning. So that became death. Now what do you do with death? Well, you avoid it. So I spent the rest of my life living to avoid the experience of death. How? By only doing what I'm good at. Building my cities. I can make life work, but not with sports. not all that good. How can I make my life work? Well, I can't do this and this and this, but, you know, I'm not so bad over here. It's working pretty well. If I just keep my distance from my wife, we get along fairly well. If I don't really work to engage deeply with her, we're, we're okay. If I just kind of have overhead projectors to teach my kids the scriptures, I can call myself a pretty good dad and pretty good Bible teacher and pretty faithful father and doing fine. I'm just building my cities. Deepest passion of my life? Prove my adequacy. Help me with that when you struggle for my soul. Know what battle you're fighting. Passion number one, that gets in the way of passion for Jesus. Passion number two, fire lighting. I draw from Isaiah chapter 50. Let him who walks in the dark do what? I want people who trust me, Jesus said. God said in Isaiah chapter 50. And then he says, if you want to know whether you're relying on the name of God, then notice what you do when you're walking in darkness. And the word for darkness there has the idea of confusion, not so much moral darkness, but you just can't see where you're going. Let him who walks in the dark do what? Let him rely on the name of his God. But then he says, but all you who light fires... This is what you shall receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. What does that mean? If your deepest passion is to be unconfused, your deepest passion is not Jesus. If when you're facing a decision, your deepest passion is to figure out exactly what to do. I've got this problem with my son, this problem with my spouse, this problem with my life, this decision to make. I don't know what to do. I've got to figure it out. Come on, God, would you help for goodness sakes? What's your deepest passion? You're trying to light a fire as best you can. Figure things out. That, by the way, is where I think our whole storms to destroy those walls. And then the people will say, we thought the walls were strong. You misled us. So I have a passion to be a wall whitewasher, a passion to say, there are certain things I don't want to happen in my life. I've heard some of you share some stories this week of heartaches that I hope I never go through. <laughs> and when I hear a heartache... And that heartache has not been mine to experience yet. A part of me says, how can I avoid that? And then may I tell you something is terrible? The natural tendency of a wall whitewasher is to say, if I, can some, if I can find some way that you've failed and that's why you're going through it, then I become judgmental. I look for your flaws. And then I can say, I won't fail that way. Now, my walls are whitewashed. It'll never happen to me. 
And now I can be self-righteous and look down my nose at you. My passion is not Jesus. Enter the battle for my soul. Discern the ways in which I'm hoping bad things won't happen to good people because I've done such and such. I really do believe that my devotional times with my kids were primarily whitewashed walls. Does that mean if I went back to it, I wouldn't have devotions? Oh, no, that isn't the answer. (laughs) But the answer is maybe a different spirit. And maybe if I had somebody in the battle for my soul and they said, Larry, how come you're so obsessive about your devotional times? Well, because I believe it's God's will to be disciplined about these things. Well, that's good. Anything else going on? Not that I can see. Well, I can see a few things. Can I share with you? Oh, for goodness sakes, I don't want a mentor. You expose some things I don't like. Wall whitewashing. But Larry, I'm exposing it because there's a passion in your heart for Christ that's getting corrupted a bit. And when your passion for Christ is purer, you'll have more joy and you'll have more impact. Passion of a wall whitewasher. Last thing I want to mention briefly is the the passion of a well digger. Jeremiah chapter 2. My people have committed two sins. Verse 13. They've dug for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. After turning from me, the fountain of all living water, the cistern that has eternal water springing up, the John 7 corollary passage. A well digger is somebody who says, I'm not sure I'm experiencing the satisfaction in my soul that I want. It's not coming from God like I expected. Let's see if I can find some other, other strategies. Sometimes it's explicit and blatant like pornography, which works so very, very well, so very, very shortly, and then leaves you worse than ever. Sometimes it's less blatant than obvious bad things like pornography. Sometimes it's the vying for leadership because it feels so good to be recognized. What's your deepest passion? What's my deepest passion? If you're in the battle for my soul, you're going to be thinking like that. Now understand, very simply and very briefly, a few things. What does God do with a, with a city builder? God loves a city builder. We're all city builders, right? Some level. What's God do with us to help us get over our city building passion so we can have more passion for Christ? One thing God does routinely, I believe, with a city builder is he takes us to the desert. Hosea 2, I'll lead them to the desert. I'll lure them to the desert. What's a desert? It's a place where all of our resources don't work. It's a situation where all of our vaunted talents are no longer any good. I mentioned Henry Nowen last night, left Yale University, where he had so many talents. He was a scholar, a writer, a brilliant thinker, and now he's with handicapped adults who didn't value any of that. Bit of a desert experience for Henry Nowen until he learned to love. God takes what we're depending on to build our cities and puts it in a situation where it doesn't count. If you're talking with somebody and you're in the battle for their soul and they're in the middle of a desert experience, one of those dark nights of the soul where all that they're good at isn't achieving what they hoped it would achieve and they feel like a failure, oh, shepherds, you have a powerful voice at that moment. And your powerful voice when you're talking to a city builder who's in the desert is a voice that says something about God and something about them. What you say about God is He's building the city. He's sovereign. He says there's something in you that's far better than all the resources you've been using to build your city. God knows what He's doing. And do you believe that because you've learned it through your desert experiences? The elder shepherd who says it with power is the one who's heard. 
And to the individual who's going through it, you talk about God and His sovereignty and His careful planning, and He's adequate, you're not, but He is, and, and He can achieve His purposes through your life, even though you're failing in so many ways, and you learn to rest in Him, and then you learn about yourself that there is something within me that God actually can use in the middle of all of my failures. And now you're shepherding a city builder who's undergoing the discipline of the desert. What do you want to say to the fire lighter who's in darkness? What does God do with the fire lighter? Sometimes He turns the lights down lower. Put you in even deeper darkness where you can't figure anything out. What then do you say to the fire lighter who's saying, I thought I had things figured out. I thought I knew how to parent. Now I haven't got a clue. I thought I knew how to minister. It's all falling apart. Now I don't know what to do. And I'm tired of the seminars that tell me what to do because I've come to the point of believing that they don't really help. I've had it. You're shepherding that person. What do you want to say to that fire lighter who's now in the middle of deeper darkness than ever before? Maybe you want to say to him something about himself or herself. Maybe you want to say, you know, there's a longing inside of you to trust that you've never even tasted. Maybe you want to say that Jesus talks about being the light. Let's explore what that means. Something about God. Something about the person. The wall whitewasher. What does God do with a wall whitewasher? Well, sometimes he lets us experience difficulties. City builders go to the desert. Fire lighters experience darkness. Wall whitewashers experience difficulties that are unexplained, that make no sense, that have no point that we can tell. And we begin to realize we're not safe. We cannot protect ourselves. We cannot... I remember as a kid raised in a Christian home, if I had devotions the day of a test, I'd get an A. Remember that when you were raised in a Christian home? And then I got so confused because sometimes I wouldn't have devotions and I'd get an A. Some days I would have devotions and I'd get a C. And I remember thinking, I can't figure God out quite. I can't get him down to my package. God lets unexplained difficulties come into our lives, sometimes far more severe than a a C on an exam, to help us realize that we can't arrange for our safety. That's in God's hands. What do you say to a wall whitewasher who's experiencing unexplained difficulties? Well, you say, but Lewis had the that creature from Narnia say to one of the children when the child was afraid to go someplace because Aslan was there, remember? And the child said, is, is he safe? Remember the word of the person? He laughed. He said, no, he's not safe, but he's good. God's not safe. Not as we define safety. Of course, he's safe in the ultimate sense. We're safely in his hands, carried home, but we're not safe from a lot of things that we thought we were going to be safe from because we did it right. Last thing I'll mention quickly to well, the well digger. What do you say to a well digger? What does God do to a well digger first? A well digger, somebody who lives for his own satisfaction and when God is not satisfying, tries another route to satisfaction. What does God do with a well digger? Well, if with a city builder, he takes him to the desert. If a fire lighter, he turns the darkness down, makes it even darker. With a wall whitewasher, he introduces difficulties. With a well digger, let me ask you, let me suggest what he does with a well digger. He lets you see the damage that your selfishness is causing somebody else. To use an obvious example, the businessman who's on a trip who watches the pornography in his hotel room that nobody knows about. And he comes home to his wife and When he walks in the front door, he really can't kiss her the same way as if he hadn't watched pornography. 
He just can't. It's going to cause damage to her soul. The man who's living all day for his own importance because that's where he gets his satisfaction. He can't kiss his wife the same way any more than the pornographer can if he spent his day building himself up through his title, digging his own wells. He can't kiss her the same way. And when that man sees the damage that he's caused his wife, what does he feel? And any honest man in the room knows what I'm talking about. What does he feel? He just feels awful. Why? Well, because if you're a Christian, you really do love your wife. You hate causing her damage. What do you need to hear from somebody at that point? What's a shepherd say to somebody at that point? You're forgiven. There's no condemnation. You're a better man than that. What's it mean to enter the battle for somebody's soul? It's the battle to to release, to nourish, to develop the passion for Christ that becomes so overwhelming that no longer does city building have any consistent appeal. No longer do we care about whether our resources make things work. Now we simply care about kingdom building because our passion is for Christ. And an elder shepherd knows that's the battle he's fighting. There's so many contrary passions to a passion for Jesus. There's city building, there's fire lighting, wall whitewashing, well digging, and a thousand others. Are you in the battle for somebody's soul? Do they know it? Secondly, we'll cover these last two very briefly. We'll be out of here by 12. Is that our time? Okay. Second element, that an elder shepherd's responsibility is not only to enter the battle for somebody's soul, but to develop a vision for what they could become. In the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, Now, this can become very selfish. I want you to look like this because I think it's right. Versus, no, I've pondered you. I've thought about you, son, daughter, husband, wife, friend. I've thought about you. I've noticed where you're weak. I've noticed where you're strong. And you know, as I think about you, this is the way from my level of discernment, and I could be wrong, but this is how I think God wants to use you in some ways. And here are the moral characteristics that are going to be just brilliantly etched on your character as time goes by. Here's what you could become as a servant of God. Gifts could be developed, character in certain ways. And, and I just see a vision of what you could be. When I was in fifth grade, my school teacher was a first-year teacher named Mr. Erb, E-R-B, first year out of college, first year teaching, and I was a fifth grader, and um, school at that point had been, you know, routine, uneventful, like everybody else's, kindergarten, first, second, third, fourth, fifth grade was a turning point. After a month of being in Mr. Erb's fifth grade class, one day, Mr. Erb said, class, you're dismissed for recess, uh, Larry, you come up here for a minute, before you go to recess. I remember, you know, well, what have I done wrong, I walked up front, Mr. Erb said, sit down, and a Mr. Erb looked at me and he said, close to these words, he said, Larry, I've been, I've been watching your work here in fifth grade and you seem to like words. I wonder if someday you might be a writer. Larry, here's what I want you to do. For the rest of the year, the last 15 minutes of class, I give the students, as you've noticed, 15 minutes to do their homework, to get a head start on their homework. I don't want you to do that. For the last 15 minutes of every class, you take this dictionary, he gave me a you know, dictionary, He said, I want you to pick out one word every afternoon, write it in a sentence, one word you've never heard before, and bring it up to me and we'll discuss it the last 50 minutes of every day. I think you might be a writer someday. Isn't that something? 
It was a year later when I was playing baseball, fair athlete, playing third base, and I made a diving catch. And I picked the ball up, and the guy on third base had made a head start to going home, and I dove, and I caught the ball, and I got to my feet, and I threw the ball home, and the catcher was there with his glove, and I put the ball right in the catcher's mitt, and he got the guy out. My coach came to me and said, Larry, you might be a ball player someday. That didn't do a thing for me. I had a few Walter Mitty fantasies, but it didn't do a thing for me. You know why? Two sentences. One, you might be a ball player. You might be a writer. One of those, now listen carefully. This means the world to me. One of those sentences I had heard before. You know when? Psalm 139? When I was fashioned in my mother's womb, the Spirit of God had a plan for my life. He whispers. Here's what I want to do. You're my workmanship. You're my poetry. That's what it means in Ephesians 4. The Spirit of God has a vision for you and me. And when you and I are attuned enough to the Spirit to actually say to somebody, I wonder if, and then we hear it as though it's something we've heard before. That sort of sounds right. Ball player, yeah, it'd be fun and all that. But this one, huh, why I wonder. Can I tell you that sentence stuck with me all through high school, college, and graduate school? And then when I was doing a sermon in my late 20s, I guess, in Boca Raton, Florida, little tiny church, 50, 60 people, and I preached one of my early sermons, and a man came up to me and he said, I'm the Canadian representative of Zondervan, and I think what you've just said ought to be in a book. That's how my writing career began. One of the ways it began. I read an article in graduate school, and a a buddy of mine read the article. The article had to do with the compatibility of Christianity and psychology. And I wrote the article, and I just for my own thought, a friend of mine said, you ought to submit that to Christianity Today. And I laughed. He said, I dare you. So I did. A couple of weeks later, your article has been accepted for publication. Here's a check for $60. Man, I was, yo! A lot of it city-building pride. Part of it, the Spirit of God saying, Larry, I'm at work. Remember what Mr. Erb said, that pagan school teacher? He was my instrument. Have a vision for anybody? A vision that the Spirit's already given? That you can put into words for them? As I began thinking about this a couple of years ago, the thought occurred to me with a bit of convicting force that I had never thought through the issue of vision for anybody. Not for my wife, not for my sons. Not for my friends, not for my clients. It was a new thought to me a couple of years ago. And Rachel and I talked about it. And we decided that maybe it might be important for us to think about that for each other as husbands and wife. What's my vision for my wife? What's her vision for me? We've written letters to each other of vision. I'm going to ask her to come up. And we're going to read you our vision letters to each other. Not because they're models of anything, but just an illustration of one way to go about it. Let me give her this microphone. just an effort to give a little bit of concreteness to this abstract idea of what does it mean to have a have a vision for somebody and this is again nothing close to a finished product or a model but our beginning efforts to say that we really do love each other and if we're in the battle for each other's souls that means that I want to see Christ more and more formed in her and she wants to see him more and more formed in me 
and she's the major instrument God can use, and I'm the major instrument God can use in her life. Now, with that in mind, we've written these letters to each other. Dearest Larry, my vision for you is to see you peacefully settled, settled in who you are in Christ and his, in his call upon your life. You are the one of the best things that's ever happened to me. We have a long history, nine years of dating and 31 years of marriage. I know you. You're godly, generous, kind, thoughtful. In our 40 years together, I have seen God's hand upon your life. I followed you in all the calls he has placed on you, not because I'm a doormat, but because I know you seek to be in the center of his will. As your wife, I want to be there with you. In the beginning of our marriage, you were settled and confident, maybe with the confidence that belongs only to youth. But in these last few years, and with a clear new call on your life, I have seen you as never before, self-doubting, unsure, questioning, tentative. I have a vision for the good God is working in you through these hard times. But I don't like seeing you in that unsure state of mind. I want to see you emerge from this darkness, this desert, with a peaceful settledness, with a firm awareness that God's hand is on you. I trust my vision for you is not to make my life easier, though it would be easier if you were settled. <laughs> so I'll paraphrase from uh, Proverbs 31.10. An excellent husband who can find, for his worth is far above diamonds. The heart of his wife trusts in him. He does her good and not evil all the days of his life. And paraphrasing from Galatians 4.19, my dear husband, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth till Christ is formed in you, till you closely sense his leading and presence. Larry, I'll hold your hand as we go through the labor pains together towards you being peacefully settled in his call. I respect you and love you as no other man, and I have a vision for you that time only deepens. Love, your Rachel. Mind to my wife, you need to know as I read this letter something which my wife is very open about. She went through four years of sexual abuse from ages 8 to 10. You'll understand these next few sentences. Dear Rachel, I met you in the middle of your four years of sexual abuse. I first dated you the year it ended. All I knew about you then was that you were pretty and that there was something about you I saw in no other girl. Forty-two years later, I still think you're pretty and I still see something in you I see in no other woman. But now I think I know what it is. I see in you a beauty that has survived a thousand assaults, half of them from me. A beauty lodged so deeply in your soul that no power can dislodge it, but there is a power that can suppress it. Sometimes I see you feel insecure, wondering if anyone really loves you, worried that if anyone could see all of you, they'd find more to criticize than to enjoy. I've helped make you feel that way, and my failure and your pain break my heart. I want to love you with a powerful, tender love that lets you feel how Christ feels about you. That will give you the courage to believe that no matter who criticizes you, no matter how hidden you feel, you will know that God delights in who you really are and that any who have his eyes will feel the same way. I see in you a terrific thing. My vision for you is that you rest. Never that you be one ounce less spontaneous, friendly, outgoing, and involved but that you quietly relax in the knowledge that I will always move towards you on behalf of God, that you're a deeply enjoyed woman with something beautiful to give that gets more beautiful the older you get. I want to love you so well that you rest. I want to honor your uniqueness, prize your individuality, treasure your feelings and thoughts, respect your opinions, 
and be there for you in every moment of life so that you're released more and more to give to this world all that's within you that has the aroma of Christ and to more deeply rest in your Father's tender arms. That's my vision for you. Rachel, you're the most alive woman I've ever met, the most remarkable woman I know. I have no higher calling than to reflect Jesus to you, and I love you. Thank you, my dear. Who's received a letter from you? They mean the world. Last thing I'll comment on briefly, it's time to quit. What does it mean to release the energy of Christ? Enter the battle for someone's soul? Develop a vision for what Christ could do in their lives? Release the energy. I want to make one point, give one illustration, and we'll leave. The point that I want to make is this. The deepest reality in each of our souls is the life of Christ. It's deeper than our city building. It's deeper than our fire lighting. It's deeper than our wall whitewashing. It's deeper than our well digging. It's deeper than our fleshly selfishness. And what that means is that when I'm most alive in the Spirit is when the energy of Christ is most pouring out of me. That means that when I'm shepherding somebody, I'm not following a technique or a model or a plan so much as I am pouring out of me that which is deepest within me, that which comes most spontaneously out of me as I'm worshiping in the presence of God. Are you most alive with somebody? I meant it so much when I said Rachel's the most alive person I know. You see, when you and I are most alive, we're most like Jesus. What does that mean? We can yield to what is deepest within us and therein find the passion of Christ, the energy of Christ, the wisdom of Christ. As we counsel, as we shepherd, we're not following a theoretical technique or a procedure so much as we are saying, Lord, will you guide me? Illustration to make the point and we'll quit. A story we heard some years ago that I think makes the point very well. A gentleman in Christian ministry had four children. Three were doing well by parental standards, walking with the Lord in a variety of ways, and one was a very clear, defiant rebel. And this young man was 24 years old, as the story is told to me, and he was living in a home across town from where his parents lived. And it was a home in a bad section of town. And there were a number of other young people living there. And it was a drug haven, a sex haven. It was everything that the parents didn't want for their son. And he was living there and had been for some time. And of course, the parents' hearts were broken. As the story was told to us, my wife and I, we heard the story. One night, about three in the morning, the phone rang in the parents' home. The phone was on the side of the husband and he answered the phone at three in the morning you never want to get a call at that hour you know it's something typically wrong and he answered the phone hello and the voice said this is the police department your son's just been arrested do you want to come down and post bail and the father wasn't sure if he should post bail or not but he wanted to go down and be with the son so he said i'll be there shortly hung up the phone and began dressing and his wife was now awake by now and said what was it and he didn't want to tell her the pain was too great but he did and our son's been arrested and not a new occurrence particularly but i'm going to go down to the police department to the jail. He drove down at three in the morning, 
and uh, got there about 3.30, I suppose, and walked into the police department and said to the sergeant, my name is so-and-so, I understand my son, named so-and-so, has been arrested. And the sergeant, looking at the records, said, what's your name again? There's nobody here by that name. Well, I just got a phone call half an hour ago. I didn't call you. Well, let me check some other precincts, and I'll see if there's anybody else in our department that called. And he checked around, and nobody had called. There's a mystery to this day unresolved. The father left the precinct, having no idea what was going on, but there was no record of an arrest of the son. He didn't know what to do, so what he did was he decided at 3, 3.30, quarter to four by now, he would drive to the home where his son was living, just on an impulse. He drove there, it's now four in the morning, and he walks in the front door, it was unlocked, and there were a bunch of young people just sprawled all over in various stages of dress, and most of them buzzed out on drugs, sound asleep by now, hangovers, whatever, and... There in the middle of this horrible scene was his son lying on the couch, unshaven, sound asleep. And the father looks at his boy. What does he feel? What's deepest within you at that moment? What's most profoundly alive within you? Do you have the courage to yield to it? The father walked over and with tears streaming in his face, leaned over and kissed his son on the forehead and walked out. That's the story. Until seven months later. Phone rang one afternoon. Uh, Dad, um, is, it, is this you, son? Yeah, Dad. Listen, uh, can we get together for lunch? I have some news that I think you might want to hear and want to share with you. Uh, sure, uh, now, anytime, yes. Um, father's tumbling all over the place, just not knowing what to do with this. And they arranged to meet at a restaurant in a few minutes. And father, of course, raced there. And his son beat him there. He walked in. He gets into the restaurant. And there's his boy, clean-shaven, clear-eyed, sitting there. And he walks up and sits down. And they embrace. And the son says, Dad, I been a Christian now for a while and didn't want to tell you until I was sure it was real. I'm not living in that house anymore. I got a job, got an apartment of my own and I want to share it with you. Oh, what's the dad? You know, he's... It's wonderful. Um, and the son finally says to him as the dad is saying, well, where do you live? And uh, tell me about your job. And the son finally in frustration says, Dad, will you please ask the one question I really want to answer? Well, what's that, son? I'll ask you. What's the question? Ask me what it was God used to bring me to Christ. What did God use to bring you to Christ? The son told the story. Seven months ago, when you came into that house and you kissed me, I wasn't asleep. When you walked out, I remember saying to myself, he saw me at my worst and he loved me. I want to know the source of that love. The father wouldn't have released the energy of Christ, the battle would not have been well fought. Tell me what an elder shepherd does. He enters the battle for somebody's soul. The battle to make the marriage better? Battle to get that person being a better missionary? Oh, no. He enters the battle to release the passion of Jesus, supplanting all the lesser passions. He develops a vision for what that person could be. And he gets all excited about it and says, that's what I'm praying for, to see Christ formed in you. I can see it now. And everything in me that the Spirit of God has done is at your disposal. My heart, my love. I want to be a dispenser of grace in your life. An elder shepherd. Father, release us to be the men and women that to some measure, we're becoming. Whatever measure we're already that, Father, we rejoice with humble gratitude because we didn't get there without you, obviously. Without you, we'd be lost and not done and just completely selfish. 
because of the miracle of your grace, we actually care about a few people. We actually like you. Where before, we didn't think you were good at all, and now we think you're terrific. And now we want to display your excellence. Father, teach us what it is to start with a few, with a spouse, with a wonderful godly spouse like I have, and to believe that as godly as my wife is, that you're wanting to perfect her even more into the image of Christ, and I can so easily get in the way. Teach me to enter the battle for the souls of a few people. Develop a vision for what your spirit could do to believe that that vision is possible even when the person is a million miles away. Then teach us to give all that's within us that you've placed there. There's a lot you haven't placed there of our control and our manipulative techniques and our efforts to arrange things and Teach us the battle is yours and all we're here to do is to reflect Jesus. And that when we do, your spirit and his timetable according to his sovereign plan does some good things. Release us to be your men and women in a world that longs to be shepherded. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To learn more, visit LargerStory.com.